The Vision app is the best place to find a growing range of homegrown, on-demand audio to help you look to God daily. You can listen to Faith and Fostering with Christians chatting about foster care in an Australian context. Plus, be encouraged by Pastor Terry Nightingale's four-minute devotions with new episodes added each week in the free Vision Christian Media app. If you don't already have the app on your smartphone or tablet, download it now from vision.org.au slash app. Vision.org.au slash app. Vision. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. You might be familiar with the expression, the long march through the institutions. Now, it's a slogan that describes the strategy for establishing conditions, even for a revolution. The Long March is a reference to the prolonged struggle of the Chinese communists around issues of positioning and manoeuvring. And it has the sentiment of working against institutions while working within the institution. And Marxism has been raised in the current election campaign. So a discussion today as to whether this threat to democracy is real, since people who hold these political principles usually deny any sort of leftist plot. Another federal election conversation today with the concern that those who hold to Marxist values are aggressive opponents of Christianity and the culture that forms on a foundation of Judeo-Christian values. Well, to uh, take us through some of the deeper issues in this conversation, always good to welcome to 2020, Charles Newington, who is the National Director of Family Voice Australia. Charles, a special welcome back. And, of course, uh, today, live with me face-to-face in the studio. Great Mm. to see you. Mm, Thank you, Neil. It is good to see you. Charles, let's start. The fact that the politicians in various uh, of their capacities, various parties, are talking about this issue of Marxism, sometimes we call it neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism, it's coming up in discussion and some people will say, well, that's just something for Eastern Europe or China that they've dealt with those things. Uh, What are your thoughts for the fact that there are candidates And there are commentators who are talking about Marxism in our Australian federal election campaign. Yes, thank you, Neil. I was alerted to it uh, because of uh, Tony Abbott's reference to it. He's referred to it on a number of occasions. And um, so I started to just start to think about it and to to investigate what the phrase means and uh, how it's become such a symbol of this idea of a long-term strategy of uh, of of what we might call cultural Marxists, people who want to change the way in which we think about reality and the way in which we do things in Australia. Uh, from a from a Marxist point of view, it, it seems a kind of a radical and extreme statement, doesn't it, to think that we think of Marxism as something historical and it's not really active in a in a kind of a cool society like Australia. But, but people like, um, as I say, like Tony Abbott, um, he picks it up and uh, lots of other people. I mean, Mark Latham, for instance, in his in his um, maiden speech in the New South Wales um, Parliament um, just last night, he, he talked about it. He he railed against the left and political correctness in his maiden speech, uh, accusing people of trying to bring down Western civilization through a campaign of cultural Marxism. 
uh, uh, Mark's a sort of Phoenix Rising, isn't he? I mean, Mark Latham is Phoenix Rising. He's he's sort of got a new wind in his sails, and uh, but he's a very very interesting commentator. He's been inside the left. He understands the left. Uh, he he he's old Labour. He knows what old Labour is, and I've 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 heard him say that he kind of feels at times like the Labour Party is not the Labour Party that he knew and that he was raised to, you know, which is why he's taken the course that he's taken. But there's a person who's got – he's a really insightful person and for him to feel that this is an important issue that needs addressing is is significant. You know, I heard a criticism years ago of uh, Bible colleges being taught about Karl Marx and uh, I remember this, and it stands out because, of course, uh, you would assume that if someone goes to a Bible college, they're learning about the Bible and they're learning about Jesus. They're learning about salvation. They're learning about the freedoms that come from faith in Christ. And I remember this criticism that came uh, that uh, they shouldn't be talking about Marxism in a Bible college. But oftentimes, to more deeply understand our faith, this idea of a comparison to what the alternative is, is a very important issue, Charles. Uh, What are your thoughts about Christians and understanding a little more deeply some of these alternatives, which perhaps even are destructive? I was uh, reading uh, the Communist Manifesto yesterday uh, um, in preparation for this conversation, and not the first time, for the first time, but... I was uh, this time. I was reading with uh, with kind of new eyes the way in which what Karl Marx does is he's writing in the middle of the nineteenth century and he's writing, observing how society is radically changing with the industrial revolution, and uh, what's emerging is uh, people, the merchant class is is emerging. That's that's becoming wealthy, and there's a shift from the old traditional monarchies and the nobilities and things like that, and the shift is occurring as this middle class is becoming wealthy, and they're starting to set the agenda socially. And what they, uh, from Marx's point of view, what they're doing is they are now using labour uh, in a in a very selfish sort of way. You know, they're using it, uh, paying very low wages in order to become incredi- incredibly wealthy, and so he sees. This distinction between the bourgeoisie and the new, the new wealthy, the new class, and the and the proletariat, the ordinary people who are really um, uh, doing it tough and being oppressed. Now, what? Why it's important is that Marx uh, and Lenin, of course, these people they set the vocabulary. They kind of they provide a kind of a way of understanding how the West was being transformed from pre-industrial uh, structures to industrial and post-industrial structures, and in giving us the language, so we now we use language like um, uh, the working classes, you know, uh, we we uh, and. Um, and I, 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 one of the words that I, I picked up in my studies, so I spent quite a, a while reading, uh, reading this kind of politics, you know, years ago, and so I read a lot of the new Marxists during that time. Um, they use phrases like estatization, and it's a big word, but what it means is it means the growing impact and influence of the state in society. Because there was a time when people lived very much unto themselves, but that's not how it is these days. Anybody who tries to run a business or or tries to do anything, they're always they've got to go through these many hoops of compliance and all these various regulations that govern their particular industry or concern. And so what we're seeing is this way in which the state is creeping into everything and starting to to sort of reshape our society and become such a central influence. And and Marx is the person who provides that kind of 
that kind of way of seeing the state growing up to to uh, and the, the the struggle between the state who who are supposed to be on the sides of the people and these middle class people that are owning the wealth and that that and and so he gives us the language and it's very useful to understand Marx and to understand his vocabulary in order to understand what's happening in society today. And this is even more personal for you, Charles, because uh, you grew up earlier years in southern Africa Mm. and you spent 10 years too in Europe Mm. and uh, you've watched some changes. You've watched some modern formations of Marxism in some of the contexts in which you've lived. Yes, that's correct. I I think that... um you know, we once again, we um, perhaps in uh, Australia, we kind of feel we've been a long way away from uh, global politics. Um, but um, I, I was born in in Zimbabwe um, in a place called Bulawayo, which means a place of the the kraal of the killings, yeah, wow. <laughs> which is a delightful place to have on your birth certificate. <laughs> yes. uh, but the the thing about that is that it, it, that that was a long time ago. Now I was in, in the 1950s, and I. I had the opportunity then to live through the transition uh, of decolonization and I watched the way in which uh, the world changed and started to think about uh, colonialism as a, a blight on society and particularly a very black mark against the the colonial powers and that um and I I lived in Africa and travel in Africa and I saw not just the the British colonies I saw you know the Portuguese and the French and and uh, I could tell the difference. Uh, and my parents, they, they were missionaries in the Belgian Congo, as it was as now Zaire, Central African Republic type area. Uh, and they, um, that was from 1945. And so my home was a home in which people came with their stories and with their experiences. And, and we were very grassroots, on the ground, ground level people. We weren't just flying with the elites, as it were, you know, sort of living at a, at a height over all this and not getting our fingers dirty. We were living at a pretty basic level in society. So that was that. I became I became interested in this, and I watched it. And uh, you know, I've got these images in my mind uh, of of people who uh, during that time. I mean. It, uh, I, I know I've got to take a breath at some point here, but um, you know, people will remember things like the Sharpeville shootings, and um, that was a part of my world. And then they'll remember the Bay of Pigs and the conflict between the Soviets and the Americans, uh, you know, of the Cold War. That was part of my world as well because I was then in England uh, when that stuff was going on, and and uh, and I was I was interested in it, and I had a very informed father who just kept pointing me and shaping me and giving me uh, a sense of what was really happening in the world. So it is very much my story. So when we talk about a long march through the institutions, Charles, uh, we're talking about something that doesn't necessarily have a focal point. You can point back to the founders uh, of what we might understand as this new Marxism, mm. uh, but people pick up on the philosophies mm. very easily, uh, mm. the Marxism philosophies very easily accessible mm. and uh, very transportable around the world and even into our own educational uh, institutions today. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about this long march through the institutions, what does that mean for uh, everyday listeners and uh, thinking about our own context? Yeah, well, very, um, very good point. Uh, the, uh, if we think think about try and reposition ourselves in the early 60s 
And in the early 60s, what we've got is the Berlin Wall going up and the line being drawn very clearly between the communist world and the non-communist world. And interestingly enough, the, the, the Berlin Wall, the communists called the Berlin Wall the wall that keeps the fascists out. You know? mm, mm. Uh, but there weren't any fascists interested. <laughs> it was about keeping the people in. It was keeping the, <laughs> yeah, the communists in. Um, but the point there was that at that time in Eastern Europe, there's this um, young man who's part of the part of the student movement in Eastern Germany, uh, and uh, Adutschke, his name is, and he um, uh, he uses this phrase in uh, in a correspondence uh, uh, with uh, Herbert Marcuse, who is part of a of a Marxist group, intellectual group that were thinking about how they could further the cause of Marxism in Western civilizations. And the reason why I'm just asking you to position yourself back there in the early 60s is because colonialism was happening and in the colonial environment, they didn't have to go through much intellectual conversation. They just gave people a gun. So out there, the old revolution was still very much a military revolution, an armed revolution. And so I lived through that to some degree in, in, in the Southern African context, the armed revolution. And I remember, you know, people that we, we remember, people like, um, um, uh, the, um, the the current president uh, or the former president of uh, of Zimbabwe, he and many others were trained by the Soviets and by the Chinese, and they were they were empowered in the sense that they were given arms to overthrow uh, the colonial powers, and and that was how you did it in old communism and old Marxism. But the new Marxism, they realized if they were going to change the West, it wasn't always going to be through the bullet uh, of a gun. It had to be through the ballot box. It had to be working with the structures of Western civilization, democratic society. And that's where the idea of the long march comes. They say, let's think about this in the long view. Let's think about how we change Western values and Western uh, attitudes in the long view by getting inside the institutions particularly the universities, and retelling the story of Western civilization's expansion, particularly the colonial period, retelling it from a Marxist perspective as an oppression, as an injustice, as something that was, uh, that was actually deeply flawed morally. And that, that has worked. When you think about the average person who thinks about well, the West's involvement in the colonial era, it is very much seen as a great social injustice. The narrative that you'll hear in so many conversations now is exactly the way you describe it. Uh, people are talking about the colonisation of Australia and they're thinking of that as exactly. a violent overthrow. And, uh, you know, there'll be all sorts of issues. And uh, if we were having a talk today with first Australians, uh, we would have a conversation that would include how all of that fits. And we might even have to uh, eat humble pie in some sense there. But there is this narrative that has changed. Mm-hmm. And uh, this idea that there is a now peaceful revolution, uh, not the violent revolution that you're describing and that what we might usually think of, but a peaceful revolution or a way that you have a long march through the institutions, uh, which doesn't include a violent overthrow, but it's nonetheless revolution. Yes, it's, an, it's a revolution in terms of how we view the world, the history and the future. And um, that's why they call it a cultural revolution. And the... There's no doubt about it that uh, that colonialism was not a um, you know it wasn't it was all wasn't all roses and boxes of chocolates by any means you know it was it was not a a, a positive thing if, when viewed from this angle particularly uh, it wasn't a positive thing uh, but actually if you stop and think about it 
one of the things that uh, that the Western colonial powers did, particularly the British, the British brought um, a lot of organisational capacity uh, to their colonies, and and they did undertake to extract themselves in a relatively peaceable manner. Of course, there was a lot of bumping uh, in the early stages when when the, the 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 local people needed to make the point it was time uh, but but I, you know i've traveled in so many of the colonies and the post the former colonies and you still see the you still see the structures that that uh, the british particularly left in their in those uh, colonies and and often the the people acknowledge that that it was a very mixed bag some of it was was a positive contribution to their countries things like education health services transport structures and things like that these things were helpful. Uh, rule of law, to add another one there, which is very important as well. Charles Newington is our guest. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. Leave a note too on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. In fact, Ben on Facebook made a comment. He said, ask yourself why it is that most atheists don't run orphanages or form organizations to provide relief to third world nations, preferring to leave the work to religious people. Statistically, atheists give significantly less to charity than religious people. I think that is your answer right there. A quick response for Ben. What were your thoughts uh, for his comment there? Oh, thank you, Ben. My observation is that there's a there's a, a, an insincerity about um, about Marxism and uh, about um, socialism and and atheism uh, if you group them all together there's a tendency to sort of talk uh, the talk as if there's a, a deep concern about humanity but when you actually evaluate the actions um you're right the actions the actions speak louder than words and it's important to evaluate the actions and you're right when it comes to the great uh, crises uh, you know things like floods and famines and natural disasters and things like that who is it that rushes to help and, and pours you know so much effort into those things and who is it that is noticeably absent in those uh, caring environments. Perhaps we'll get more into what happens in the heart uh, when you adopt these different godless ideals. Mm. Uh, let's take a call or two. In fact, we only just had a short update just a little while back uh, with Tony McLennan uh, talking about the God revolution. Tony McLennan on the phone with us from Sydney. Hi, Tony. Well, hello, Neil. And I've uh, just been very interested to hear your uh, interviewee there talking about the Cultural Revolution, the, the Marxist, cultural Marxism as it's called. Yep. What are your thoughts, Tony? Well, I, I'm just so glad that um, uh, that someone is actually speaking out about this and giving clarity to the whole thing. Uh, having grown up in Australia in the 50s, uh, right through to the present day, obviously, uh, I've seen this trapped. I was really dismayed, and I'd like to ask your speaker your interviewee, the, uh, to comment on things like the Little Red School book and the, the sexual revolution, which seemed to precede the socialism-intensive activities of uh, certain parties of government subsequent to that. But there, was, there seemed to be a sexual revolution first, followed by uh, increasing socialism, and now 
the development of secular humanism as the default religion for Australia. Uh, this is evidenced by a lot of the things going on in the government in Victoria. Tony, good thoughts there. Let's bring Charles in on the conversation okay, because I think what we're talking about here is uh, the symptoms of what happens when you start to have these cultural Marxism principles aligned with a national context. What are your thoughts for Tony, Charles? Yes, thank you, Tony. My uh, observation, and I make this observation with, um, uh, you know, with a sense of um, humility. It, it's not as if I've done a lot of profound work on this, but my observation is that it's very clear that Western civilization is is relies for its moral direction. It relies upon the Judeo-Christian ethic, and uh, part of the Judeo-Christian ethic is a very big part is about personal morality and the place of the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of sexuality and how we exercise our sexuality. And so to focus upon sexuality was, in a sense, it was a wedge, that, that, uh, that a wedge to the heart of the, of the Judeo-Christian ethic. And uh, we found ourselves uh, in a situation as Christians where we appeared to be so uh, out of touch, you know, with the new mood, the new zeitgeist, uh, in the in the uh, sexual revolution of the 1960s, where, uh, where it was all about it was all about freedom and the the uh, the emergence of this new uh, individualism, the doctrine of individualism, and so that was uh, you you'll recall how the church tried to to sort of dam the uh, dam the flood, as it were, and we were characterised as being um, you know wowzers and uh, killjoys and being so uh, historical and hysterical. Uh, and uh, and but it had a very profound f- effect upon people who were caught up in the sexual revolution because it it damaged their their sense of um, ability to uh, reconnect with their faith. They felt like they they'd blown it. You know, they, there was too much b- uh, bad water now between them and God. So uh, th- that's uh, that's uh, part of my reading of it. I, I think that the 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 idea of um, uh, of communism, one of its fundamental ideas, is that it's not just a, the absence of God. It's a, it's an anti-position about God. It, it views faith as something that is that is fundamentally dangerous to society, and it must be it must be removed and you can see the violence with which they they exercise that in so many places and 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 one of the reasons it is is because faith actually the relationship between faith and uh, and the moral structures such as the family and marriage uh, they they are a kind of a set aren't they they go together and if you pull faith out you're left with uh, an empty shell in marriage and an empty shell in one sense of um, sexual discretion and uh, and self control and so uh, they they saw that they understood that and they could see that that um, sexuality is such a strong urge; it's so easy to sort of um, to, to 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 cause to take it to full heat and to to superheat it through the media that was emerging, uh, you know. And 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 that that's my spin on it, anyway. Tony McLennan, a special honour to you too, because uh, you're leading the organisation that is promoting the God Revolution. And uh, when we're talking about things like revolution today, uh, honour to you because uh, you're doing a good work and you're working with people right on the cutting edge there, sharing their. Faith with others, uh, winning souls to Christ. Uh, Tony McClendon, thanks so much for joining us today on 2020. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Jason in Victoria. Hi, Jason. Good, good morning, Neil and Charles. How are you? Very yes, well. Hello, what are your thoughts, Jason? I think we should pray against 
the cultural Marxism in the name of Jesus because it is not of God. Jason, interesting thought there because uh, perhaps praying against something is different than praying for the uh, the way that uh, there might be a flourishing within the godliness of the nation. Your thoughts for Jason, Charles? Uh, Jason, I, I agree with you that this is something that is so obviously dangerous to people um, who are uh, naive about what's really happening in society. Uh, none of us are our real wisdom, are we? We're not the personification of wisdom. I'm certainly not. So we, we, we need uh, to be praying for people who are being affected by this. Uh, I think, too, that it's very important for the church to realize its responsibility and that so much of what has happened in Western civilization has happened because the church um, lost its way uh, and uh, lost its moral authority and I think that the recent uh, Royal Commission into Sexual Abuse and Institutions, n- not just church institutions, but uh, but particularly you would have thought it was only about the church, uh, but nevertheless, th- that's an example of the fact that we, if we lose our way, if the church loses its moral bearings, if it loses its sense of, of moral direction and loses its engagement with society in, in the spirit of Christ, th- society has no other compass. It has no other light and it gets easily into into deep and dark water. Charles, we'll take some more calls in just a few moments, but let me ask you, uh, how do we identify what happens when there is a major shift in society? Uh, We're taken by surprise by this. It seems to be a slow, as we talked about, a march through the institutions. But how do you describe the position that honours God in a nation to this change of a position that might be anti-God in a nation? I think that it's helpful to start by talking about how society used to be in the sense of Western societies like Australia uh, were based in the uh, Judeo-Christian moral environment. It was what they recognized was that their legislation and their institutions arose out of the Judeo-Christian ethic. And what that means is it means uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic refers to the role of the Old Testament, the laws of Moses, uh, the Ten Commandments, and then the the New Testament, the, 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 the message of grace that we come to through Christ, that what we've got is the laws set uh, and define what is right and what is wrong morally. In Christ, we see the solution to people who have broken those laws and fear that because they've broken those laws, they are entirely separated from God. What we find in Christ is the way in which we are reconciled to God. So that we, it doesn't mean that the laws are in, unimportant. The laws are there to guide society and to still remain as the social found, as the social and moral foundation for society. But they are going to be applied in the light of the grace of Christ. So that that's what we mean when we talk about there being a Judeo-Christian ethic base. So that means that when we uh, when we find somebody guilty of a crime, we realize that there's an appropriate and just punishment for that crime. But the New Testament is also there that says there must also be an opportunity for that person to rehabilitate. And we must be involved not just in punishing him, but in creating an environment for his rehabilitation. So that's how the, the the old and new testament, as it were, works in our in our legal system. And it's not just through a system of laws, Charles, but it has to do with the way that people who are under this 
leadership under this rule uh, have a heart attitude. Uh, what are your thoughts? Because uh, if you have this sort of Judeo-Christian foundation and shared values, uh, if you take those away, you only have a legalistic system of principles that must be enforced. Give us some sort of insight into what happens in the heart of a nation that actually is governed by these Judeo-Christian values. What happens is we never forget we never forget the humanity of people. We we are flesh of their flesh. We know what it is to be a sinner, if you like. You know, we, we know what how how mortal we are. We know how vulnerable we are to temptation and all this sort of thing. So we go about the business of running society with half a mind on the fact that we are dealing with people just like us. And it could be me sitting in that dock, you know, type thing. We have that sense of uh, of uh, uh, that sense of identification with the with the humanity, with the frailness, the vulnerability, and the fact that life is precious, and so people make mistakes. What we have to do is we've got to find the balance between between protecting society from habitual criminals, repeat offenders, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we have to find a way of giving people a path back. So we always find some joy, don't we, in seeing somebody who who recovers. You know, there's something about us that goes, oh, that's that's redemptive, we say, you know, and, and something rises in us because we need that redemption too. Charles, let's talk and we'll take some calls in just a few moments and there are people who are waiting patiently. But this idea that if you do away with the godliness of a nation, yes. which appears to be what is happening in Australia and listeners can have their own expression as to how they see that happening. But when you have rulers or leaders rise on this Marxist side, then typically what happens is the development of friends and enemies. You have those who are in favor and those who are out of favor, and those who are out of favor eventually are on the receiving end of what what we might describe as quite uh, punitive measures for their being out of favor. I think what you're talking about is... You're talking about the comparison between uh, between what we see happening in that kind of totalitarianism that communism's great for communists, but it's terrible for everybody else, mm, yeah. and and on the other hand, the Judeo-Christian ethic that is that is soaked in the message of reconciliation, and that's always trying to find a, a middle path, a, trying to find a decent moral compromise. So people mustn't look at, uh, and we see this, we see this in this oppositional notion in our parliaments. You know, that people think that this is a terrible thing that that we get these uh, these politicians throwing abuse at each other across the floor or whatever. Actually, um, that's not what was meant by it. What was meant by it was the fact, the recognition that that nobody has the whole truth. And so a, a, a government might take a particular position, but you need an opposition, an informed opposition that can analyze it, can study it, and that can come up with uh, with a better outcome in the end. So that the, the, the purpose of the Westminster system is not that we have parties at loggerheads, but rather that we have parties working together to try to resolve what is good and right and best for the nation. Now, as we lose the Christian influence, we lose that spirit, and it just becomes oppositional, and it becomes uh, uh, crass. And 
and, uh, you know, soulless. Uh, we might say even that word hateful. Uh, and uh, yeah. that's a word that is being bandied around and usually it's being targeted at Christians. And I'd encourage uh, listeners, read any of the latest commentary that you'll read about Israel Folau and mm. you'll hear how the leftist, and you might even describe that as cultural Marxist commentariat, is describing Israel Folau, who simply uh, uploaded a Bible verse and uh, he is considered I'd to, be to be filled with hate. To that. Well, uh, we'll see if we've got time to. Yeah, uh, let's, yeah. let's, we've got lots of calls coming through. Let's take some, we'll need to be quick with uh, a, a question or comment and we'll get a quick response from Charles. Let's start with Mary Ann in Adelaide. Hello, Mary Ann. Oh, good welcome. morning. Yeah, good morning. I will be quick. Um, uh, my age group, I'm 60. My parents had escaped from uh, communism and a lot of us um, had experienced, um, um, through our parents, their, their, their stories. I just want to quickly say that what really surprises me, uh, when you look at history, why is it that people don't remember the history? And we, or a lot of us escaped, a lot of the uh, migrants came into this country escaping those kind of regimes, and yet what's going through the universities is as if our children don't know anything of the history of their parents or their Marianne, you're making a wonderful point here. Uh, let's talk history just briefly, Charles. Part of the cultural uh, Marxism is to revise history. It's called revisionism. And what they do is they are retelling the story of uh, a re relatively recent history that, um, that, that obviously cuts out anything that positions socialism or Marxism in a bad light. And, uh, and, and blames capitalism actually for everything that went wrong in the world. And so young people are not getting uh, a proper historical overview. They're getting very biased historical perspective. And so they come out thinking that, uh, that Western democracy has been the great Satan, that, that it's caused the, the problem. And then what they, what the Marxists do is they say they point to, to colonialism and they say, there, proof positive. We've proved our case. Uh, but that is a very, a, a very biased view of history. And uh, so that's what's happening, Marianne, in our schools. They're just being told the focus is upon the sins and failures of Western democracy. It's not upon the sins and failures of Marxism and socialism. Marianne from South Australia, thank you for your call. Let's take another one. Val is on the line from Mackay in Queensland. Hello, Val. Welcome. Oh, hi. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that... Uh the Humanist Manifesto is almost identical to the Communist Manifesto. And I believe that uh, humanism is the beast system in Revelation 13, where it says uh, 666 is the number of a man. In many manuscripts that a is left out, it's the number of man. And uh, that rebellion against God goes right back to Eden. And this is a system, uh, the beast system. The devil's got a two-pronged fork uh, he's attacking with. One is uh, Marxism and the other is Islam. Val, you're making some strong points here. A quick response from Charles. If you can make a quick response, because this is actually, you know, for people who are uh, students of biblical prophecy and interested in the way that things work in the end times, uh, there'll be some interest in this. Val, I understand uh, what you're talking about and how when we go back to the scriptures and we look at the way in which 
in the in the Garden of Eden, the, the great sin there seems to be uh, Adam and Eve choosing to reject God and his counsel and to take their own way. So we can see it uh, in a sense. It's a sort of a, a metaphor for humanism, man choosing his own destiny. And this is very much a part of what's going on in society today where uh, we heard uh, uh, the, uh, the leader of the opposition say uh, last night in the, in the debate that he, he, he wasn't sure whether he believed in hell. No, he didn't type thing. In other words, what he's saying is he's saying he doesn't, he doesn't really believe that, uh, that there's anything other than the natural world. He, he, he's a disbeliever in God uh, and he's a disbeliever in the devil. It's just about humanity and the planet. And and that is that is classical humanism, but it's it's part of a subset of of a lot of different ideologies. And very often the key the difference is um, uh, in humanism we're looking at um, at the nature of humanity, and that's the focus. Communism we're looking at the ideal ideology of political structures, and socialism we're looking more at the business of economy. So it's just the same sort of thing that's being applied in different uh, environments. Val from Mackay, thank you so much for your call. One eight hundred three six. 16316. Let's take another call. Kevin is in WA. Hello, Kevin. Kevin, are you with us? Kevin is not with us. Uh, you might like to call back, Kevin, if you've dropped out somehow. 1-800-316-316. Facebook comment from Mike in Tasmania who says, It's amazing that the former USSR and Eastern Europe allowed Billy Graham to preach Jesus Christ back in the 1980s. Uh, that's an interesting uh, concept because, of course, Billy Graham was a breath of fresh air back in the 1980s. Yes, uh, it's, it is fascinating how these sort of things happen. Sometimes it's a bit of a publicity stunt. It's a sort of a way of saying, look how open our society is. Uh, there's a realization that a person comes and goes and the lasting influence will be soon washed away by the, the ever present, um, um, attitudes and values of the political system in place. So it's not unusual for this to happen. Uh, it happens even in uh, in um, Islamic countries that sometimes they they allow a, a Christian speaker uh, to, to to have a state. Okay, let's move on a little because this idea of the long march through the institutions, and we might think of our political institutions, we might think of the media, uh, we might think of schools and universities. And just to settle on universities for a few moments, because as you were talking about just a few minutes ago, Charles, uh, this idea of revisionism, and the fact that in our universities there's been this controversy over the Ramsey Foundation wanting to teach courses on Western civilization, and that being really almost outlawed by those professors and those who are in control of the universities saying, oh, that's all uh, reflecting back to those violent colonial days and reflecting, as you were saying, this dreadful history of Australia. Uh, give us some thoughts on this idea of revisionism and the march through our institutions which seems to have a bottleneck when it comes to our universities. This is a very important aspect of where we might address uh, issues of cultural Marxism. Yes, correct. I was reading an article um, by uh, a man called Irvine in the Quadrant, and he was writing about uh, a former professor of philosophy at the University of Sydney, uh, David Armstrong, and his influence in, in the West. And uh, and just bear with me for a minute. He, he makes this point that at least within the Western world, Armstrong's version of physicalism 
if not quite the received wisdom of the age, has been so remarkably influential that it is hard to imagine it having greater impact. And what he's talking about here is that um, back in the 60s through the 90s when uh, Armstrong was the, in the chair there, what he talked about was that um, humanity um, must stop thinking about the metaphysical, you know, the spiritual, must stop thinking about it. and And particularly he felt that science was saying that um, – that what was happening in the brain was just sort of electrochemical impulses and things like that. There was no soul or mind there. That's just the word we use to kind of bag it all up, if you like, so that we have this feeling that there's something to us that's more than just electromagnetic impulses. But he was making the point that that's not the case. The reason why I'm taking you there is because that what that does is it sort of says, well, science has proved that all these profound thoughts are nothing other than electro electromagnetic impulses. They're just they're just brain synapse snappings that are going on there. There's nothing actually out there. It's only in our own imagination, in our own minds, that God exists and that these things exist. And now that that sounds like um, uh, you know to some people of faith that they, they have experienced God in a very personal way, and they can tell the difference between synapses that are going ping in their heads and what they experience in their hearts. They can tell the difference between that. But if you've never experienced that, and all you've got is synapses going ping, well, then you can see that lots of people are just sucked in by that. The reason why I'm saying that is because he called it physicalism and he was talking once again, it's an example of humanism and now it's focused upon the nature of man and it's saying there's nothing to human beings except the physical reality of their bodies. There's no soul, no mind, nothing metaphysical, nothing spiritual out there. It's just language we use to describe our experiences that are sometimes inexplicable. Now, that is like a, a milestone on the long march. So we move people culturally to a point where they say, I think you're right. I think that is my experience. I'll take that story on as my story to explain myself. I'm not sure whether God exists or whatever, but I tend to think that everything that's going on in my head is just the brain. There's nothing more than that. And that's a key milestone on the journey of what becomes a cultural revolution. And, of course, as we talk about a long march through the institutions and reflecting on that with the neo-Marxists, those new Marxists, we must reflect also on the direction that perhaps those who are interested in God, the Christian church needs to formulate the way that it is on a march through the institutions as well, because perhaps we've been caught resting, caught uh, sleeping here. We've dozed off a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we might talk some more about that, but let's take one more one more call. Uh, Jonathan on the phone from Perth in WA. Hello, Jonathan. Yeah, hello, Neil. Jonathan, you what are your when thoughts? When we look at the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God, they are far apart. That's true. Because scientifically, or what they talk about, psychologists, sociologists, psychiatrists, or all these they study today, they are just men wisdom. But uh, when you look at the things going on in the world, you don't want to know God. They, 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 they put God in a such a way that uh, they confuse themselves. I don't blame them because, let's look at the reality, let's be realistic. If the church is so confused with what they believe, with what they teach, how do you expect a scientific proof or those who are outside will believe what we are talking about? 
Jonathan, you're making some great points there, and uh, you're even talking about what happens when these thoughts come within the church. Uh, That's a big conversation for another day, and uh, there is a very big difference, and perhaps it's becoming even more marked as we start to see this rise of this cultural Marxism, uh, Charles. Uh, It's more marked, and uh, our faith is becoming much more distinct, and uh, the benefits of our faith will become more distinct as well. This whole idea of as the dark gets darker, the light gets brighter. There's very much a distinction now between this Marxist philosophy that we're seeing and what it is to be a Christian believer. Uh, correct. I, I want to, uh, picking up on Jonathan too, thank you, for Jonathan, for your comments. I, I think that one of the big things the church needs to realize is that this is not just an intellectual conversation that we're having in society. It's not just uh, our arguments are better than their arguments. It's n- not just about that. We are talking from a position of the reality of God and the reality of the Christian experience of God. And we must always remember that while, we, while God does come to inform the mind and to advise and direct the mind and, he, and our thinking does get shaped by our faith, our faith is more than our thinking. Our faith is our experience of God. God wants to be known. We have that hunger to know God and to be known of God. And, and to have a relationship. But this is the language of Christian faith, that, that God is not just an abstract notion, but he is an ever-present reality. And, and it's no wonder if we allow the conversation just to become intellectual, it's no wonder that it, that's all it is. It lands up as an argument, you think this and I think that. But when I'm in, in a situation where I see somebody who's uh, in some kind of difficulty and the spirit of Christ with, uh, that influences me awakens me to a new sense of compassion and a new sense of faith for that situation and I pray with them and God does something amazing in their lives, they then have a story of the call it what they may, but they know we prayed about it and we looked to Jesus about it and something happened. And that's the church must not abandon that. We are a people of faith. We're not just a people of reason. And we have a testimony that we can share that is uh, something that people can't argue with because if it becomes your own, not only intellectual understanding, but also your experience. Uh, there's something very, very powerful in that. And it must be both. It, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not just our experience, you know, because God does save the mind as well. But uh, he saves the heart and the mind. We, the both are reconciled to God. We need, we need, and that's part, a tendency in the church. The church tends to polarize on this. So we find some sections of the church that are just wanting to use the Bible as a kind of a proof text, and we get other people that are just using the Bible as a kind of a landing pad for their experience. It needs to, we need to, Pull those those two arms of the church together. Uh, plenty more to talk about on another occasion. We have run out of time. Thank you so much to Jonathan in WA. A quick uh, a quick comment here, Charles, because uh, no doubt as the conversation has unfolded, it sounds like we're talking about the left side of politics. Perhaps the Labor Party, the Greens. Uh, perhaps we're talking about the left, but. Cultural Marxism doesn't take sides so much, and there is this expression that happens in all sides of politics. I wonder if you've got a comment on where that is affecting uh, people who are standing as candidates in all the different parties, that there is an influence here of cultural Marxism, even upon the culture that we live in. Yes, because of the fact that the majority of people that are uh, that are looking at, uh, at the world through what we might call godless uh, from a godless perspective, the majority of the people that are doing that are on the left-hand side. There's a tendency for us to to class it all as a form of Marxism. 
but you're right. It's part of a, a broader uh, attitude, a broader cultural shift from the rejection of God and the rejection of his influence. Uh, and there are many people on the what we might call the right side of politics who are not who are atheists or, no, or agnostics, and they they don't consider God in in their in their politics at all. And this is a big challenge for us as a society: is that our our political system it has a philosophical base, it has a deep philosophical base, and that base will out. It will come out. It will be manifest in how the cult, uh, how the country uh, moves through time. And if we abandon uh, our experience of God, our long experience of God in the Judeo-Christian ethic and, and faith, um, what we are abandoning is we are abandoning the very heart and soul of our society. I guess time to stop playing around the edges of our faith and to dive into the deep waters uh, to experience, to understand intellectually and uh, experientially, spiritually, these uh, understandings of being a follower of Christ, uh, to be one who is a part of the household of God. It's been a wonderful conversation with you today, Charles, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next time we get together once again. For those listeners looking for some more detail about this, I mentioned that the On Point magazine is the magazine that is distributed by Family Voice Australia, and you can subscribe to that and I'll point you to the website where you can actually get on the subscription list and receive a magazine that will be full of wonderful commentary and deeper commentary that you might be looking for about these sorts of issues that are shaping our culture in Australia familyvoice.org.au is the website familyvoice.org.au the magazine I mentioned is called On Point. Charles Newington our guest over this past hour is the National Director of Family Voice Australia Charles, thanks so much for being with us on 2020. Thanks for the opportunity, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au. 